0: All right. Well, if this is your first time with us in theological equipping, you will notice a few things. One, this room will triple in size over the next 15 minutes. It's this uh, strange natural phenomenon we have here at Parkway. The other thing is that you'll notice this is a lot less formal than the sermon. Typically, you wouldn't uh, shout out or uh, yell at Jeff or something if he's in the middle of a sermon or ask a question, whereas here, it's a little less formal, so we can, uh, if you have questions and these kind of things, we would love to be able to uh, help you. Now, I want to start off by telling you something that is new this semester. Back by popular demand, we're going to add Q&A back back at the end of every lesson. So what we used to do is we would do a lesson till 10, and then we would have about 10, 15 minutes of Q&A. But then we realized, though, that people need more time to get coffee and use the restroom and pick up their kids or whatever it is before service, so we got rid of that. Now we're going to add it back, but at a different time. So we're going to teach from 9 to 9.50 and then do 10 minutes of Q&A. That way you get the best of both worlds. You'll get to ask questions and you'll get a chance to still get coffee. And coffee is important. We always need a delicious, addictive substance to keep us paying attention to God's Word. So uh, that's what we're going to be doing this semester. Should be a lot of fun. Uh, When you ask questions, Just keep in mind that those are sometimes eternally enshrined online uh, when we record these things. So some questions for this semester, everybody look at me real quick, this is important. Some questions for this semester, it might be better to ask us one-on-one instead of publicly, especially as we deal with areas like human sexuality, homosexuality, transgenderism, these kind of things. You might uh, have a more personal question that you want to ask, and maybe that should be kept personal. So we're happy to answer that question, but some are big room questions and some are one-on-one questions. So uh, you discern, let the reader understand. So, this semester, we are getting into a brand new topic, and actually we're getting into three topics. We are talking about anthropology, which is the doctrine of humanity, mankind. We're going to talk about us. Uh, we're going to talk about harmardiology, all right? That is the doctrine of sin. Hamartia is the Greek word for sin. I also think that is the Spanish word for hammer, by the way, uh, but I think there's a correlation there. And then lastly, we're going to talk about the beginnings of redemption. We're going to talk about what God has done in Christ to save us. Next semester, we might go into to something else about how that's applied to us, but this semester, we'll talk about redemption. So, we're going to talk about mankind sin and redemption. Now, if you've been here the last several semesters, here's the things we've already covered. We did New Testament theology, which was awesome and spicy, and we talked about things like resurrection and the kingdom of God and how to read Revelation, which has no S at the end of it. Uh, We talked about bibliology, the doctrine of the biblos, the scriptures, the Bible. We talked about where we got the Bible and why these books are in the Bible and how do we know that the Bible is inerrant and these kind of things. We talked about how to study the Bible And then last semester, we talked about the doctrine of God. We talked about God being a trinity. We talked about uh, who is Christ, who is the Spirit. We talked about God's attributes. We talked about how do we know God exists. A lot of awesome things. But this semester, we're going to talk about humanity, sin, and redemption. Are you excited? All right, four of you. Let's do it. Start today. Introduction. Today we are talking about and we're beginning our series in what is called anthropology. What is anthropology other than a, like a fashionable ladies store, all right? That is an anthropology. That ends with an I-E. This is anthropology with a Y. What is anthropology? You might have heard the term anthropology if you took a class in college in the humanities or the history of Egypt or something like this. Same kind of idea. Uh, the Greek word anthropos, which looks like that, and I've transliterated it into English right here, anthropos means mankind or human. Okay, the word just means man, but it's more. It means human because it can apply to a woman as well. A woman can be an anthropos, right? Because she is human. So anthropology is the study or the doctrine of humanity. It is the study of mankind, and so that's what we're going to start talking about today. Let me give you a definition of mankind. Today we're going to talk about what does it mean to be human. What makes us humans? What are humans? What do we do? Uh, That's what we're going to talk about today. And then as we go on in several different lessons, we'll talk about different facets of human life. Things like marriage, things like children, things like uh, whatever it might be. So let me give you a definition of what a human is. What is a human? Mankind is a created, moral, intelligent being. Notice those three things. Those are important, that we are created, we are moral, and we are intelligent being. With both a material part, our bodies, and an immaterial part, our souls, created in two genders which exist to glorify God. Okay, I'm going to read that again. Mankind is a created moral intelligent being with both a material part body and an immaterial part soul created in two genders which exist to glorify God. That's what we're going to be talking about today. If you, as you're reading that definition, say, wait a second, I'm created, and I have moral intelligence, and I'm intelligent, and I'm either a boy or a girl, welcome. You fit into anthropology, all right? Everyone in this room uh, fits into these categories. So we're going to be talking about us. Now, before we do, let me tell you why it's important that we study us. Okay, so some people would say, okay, why don't we just study God if we're studying the Bible? Well, the Bible also talks about humanity. So I want to start with a great quote from John Calvin. It's one of the ways he starts out his uh, greatest work, his magnum opus, Institutes of the Christian Religion. Here's what he says. Listen to this. Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. We cannot have a clear and complete knowledge of God unless it's accompanied by a corresponding knowledge of ourselves. This knowledge of ourselves is twofold, namely, to know what we were like when we were first created and what our condition became after the fall of Adam. Okay? So let me summarize what's going on here. I've found, really, that there are two kinds of churches. Some churches are really, really, really good at theology and doctrine. They're really good at knowing who God is. They're really good at knowing the Scriptures. But they're not as good as engaging with culture because they spent all their time just studying God and no time studying anthropology, no time studying humanity. Conversely, I've seen other churches that are great with cultural engagement. They very much understand the depths of the human heart. They're really good socially. They understand uh, social relations. They do a really good job understanding humanity. But they're somewhat ignorant of the Scriptures. We don't want to fall into either one of those camps. We want to take the best out of both of those. We want to be a church that knows the Bible really, 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 really well and knows God really, really, really well but also is able to analyze ourselves because if you take this knowledge about God and you don't understand humanity, it's, it's hard to get that message to them. Okay? It's hard to get that message to them. So to be a good evangelist, to be a good disciple maker, you have to both know God and humanity. You have to be able to take this message that's biblical, but you have to be able to apply it to somebody in all different walks of life, all different facets of life. Your evangelistic methods have to change if you're talking to somebody that grew up in the church versus somebody who grew up Hindu or somebody who grew up Buddhist. You wouldn't just say the exact same thing because you mean different things by the terms you'll use. Okay? So we need to understand God and we need to understand us to correctly understand how we apply the Bible to ourselves. Everybody with me on that? Okay. Nod your head sleepily if you agree. There it is. Okay. Why did God create mankind? Let's talk about why we are here. Number one, he did not create us because he was lonely. That's super important. You might have heard your sweet, dear grandma. My mother told me this as we were growing up, that the reason that God created us was, I don't know if it was my mom or was somebody, was because he was basically lonely. He just needed fellowship. He was up there in heaven and he was like super bored and he was having a tea party with all his stuffed animals and crying because there wasn't any real humans. There was just Mr. Bear. And so what he needed to do is he needed to create humans so that there would be fellowship. Okay? That is ridiculous. God is not lonely. God does not lack anything. God has eternal fellowship within the members of the Trinity for all eternity. Father, Son, and Spirit are doing just fine without you. All right? All right? So God did not create us because he was lonely or something like that. Number two, he didn't create us because he needed something. This is really important. Uh, Christianity is different than, say, uh, religions where people put out food for their gods or they, they have to wash their gods. You'll see that if you go, go into a temple in Nepal or something like that, and they'll have their polished statues, and they have to go in, and they've got to clean their gods, and they've got to feed their gods. Their gods are kind of just like big metal babies that they have to take care of okay? You'll see that in the Bible. The the biblical authors mock those. Elijah mocks the prophets of Baal and these kind of things. Elijah will mock them for their false gods. Isaiah uh, will mock people who have idols because what they're doing is they cut down a tree and they throw half of the tree into the fireplace to warm themselves, and the other half they carve into a statue and bow down to it, okay? And they will make fun of them because of that. God does not need us, okay? Keep this in mind in your evangelism. Keep this in mind in your disciple-making. Keep this in mind in your sanctification. Keep this in mind in everything. God uses us. He commands us to do this. He is the one that prompts it. It's a way we grow in our love for Him, but He does not need us. Acts 17, 24-25. Let me read this to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Okay, This is not God's house. Okay? It's good to be God's house this morning. It's not good to be in God's house. God does not live here, though McKinney's very nice, okay? Though it's a very nice city. Does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. The idea here is this. God needs nothing from you. That's reversed. You need everything from God. In Him we live and move and have our being. We don't even have ontology. We don't even have being. We don't even exist apart from Him. We are completely dependent on Him at all times, and He is not at all dependent on us ever, okay, ever. So why did God create us? The Bible's going to say that God created us for His glory, for His glory, to glorify Him. Let me say it this way. What does that mean? To magnify Himself to Himself. That's what it means. He created us for His glory. Not because he's lacking in glory. When we worship God, we're just throwing water on an infinite fountain. He created us because he delights in himself and he delights in his creation. Isaiah forty three seven says this: Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, who I formed—I'm sorry, whom I formed uh, and made. First Corinthians ten thirty one. So whether you drink, eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Meaning that's our purpose. Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. Amen. So the reason humanity exists is not because of any lack in God, but only so he glorifies himself to himself. It is for his glory. Our job is to make much of God, is to lift high the name of Christ. It is to uh, point people to him. It is to make much of his name. That is our purpose. He created us for his glory. The example I often give is this. In the same way that a painter will create a painting. So what a painter will do, if you're a good painter, not one of these weird painters that wears weird clothes and just throws, you know, like blood on the wall and that's art. I mean real art, okay, real art. What a painter will do is they will paint a painting and they will make sure all the details look right and when they're finally done with their painting, they will step back and they will say, it's beautiful, it's a great painting. Now that painting doesn't exist without the painter. None of that paint puts itself on the canvas automatically, okay? The painter puts it there. So in the same way, what God does is he creates the stars, he creates the mountains, he creates humanity, and he steps back and he says, it's brilliant. It is very good, as Genesis would say, okay? And every time someone sees that painting, they think, man, Van Gogh is a great painter. Michelangelo is a great painter. In the same way, when you see creation, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to say, I bet that the God of the Bible is a really, really, really great painter. A really great painter, okay? What is the purpose of life? What is the meaning of life? We're going to answer that in like... A minute. This is something that has stumped philosophers and people all over the world. Why are we here? What is mankind's purpose? And the Bible will tell us very simply what our purpose is, and it's simply this, to glorify God. That is the purpose of life. There, we just answered it. Every time a philosopher climbs a mountain, he finds a theologian already at the top. He finds a theologian already at the top, okay? What is the purpose of, let's talk about what the purpose of life is not. Number one, when I've asked people that are not Christians, why are we here? If you're not a Christian, I get it. That's fine. I've I've, I've struggled with atheism. I get get the questions. I get these issues. What then is the purpose of life? I will get several answers that are ridiculous. Here are some answers that I've gotten from people. Number one, the purpose of life is just living. That's called a circular argument. That's not giving me a reason. You're saying the purpose of life is life. That's not a thing. You're just appealing to itself because you have no answer. Okay? So the purpose of life is not just living. The purpose of life is also not just trying to make your own meaning. I've heard people say that. The purpose of life is for everyone to find their own meaning, to find what matters to them. If if that's your view, it actually means that you have no meaning. If you're having to make it up, it means it's not already there objectively anyway, okay? They're just making it up kind of as they go. I've heard people say that the meaning of life is just to make yourself happy. There's a lot of problems with that. One, whatever you're trying to do doesn't bring you ultimate happiness apart from Christ. Number two, what makes you happy might go against what makes someone else happy. What if someone like Hitler likes exterminating the Jews? That makes him happy, and you're Jewish. Now whose view of happy wins? You see, there's a problem with this kind of thinking. I've heard other, and I I didn't put this in the notes, but I've heard other people say that the point of uh, living is just to pass on your genes. And here's my question for that. For what purpose? You pass on your genes so they die, and pass on their genes so they die. What are you trying to turn into? What is the end goal of passing on your genes? You see, you have none apart from a biblical worldview like that. So what is the purpose of life for the Christian? Here it is, the $10,000 question. I don't know why I chose $10,000. I could have chosen a million. I could have chosen a lot more. But the $10,000 question, what is the purpose of life it is to glorify God? What does that mean? It means that we love Him, we delight in Him, we enjoy Him, we obey Him. Worship to God is joy. John Piper has this famous phrase that he says all the time, which is that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Okay? Worship is not just opening your mouth and making a sound and singing. Worship is enjoying God. It's delighting in God. It's seeing God as more valuable than every other thing. That's what true worship is. That's what true worship is. Let me give you some passages that talk about the purpose of glorifying God. John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So notice this. Christ didn't come that you might just get your get-out-of-hell-free card and then be miserable the rest of your life. He came that you might have life and have it abundantly. When you are a Christian, you are living the fullest life. Why? Because you know the creator of everything. You have deeper human relationships because you're in community. You have better marriages. Why? Because you know how marriage is supposed to work. You enjoy your kids more because you realize they're a blessing and not just a curse when it's two in the morning and they're throwing up. Your whole worldview is different when you're a Christian because Christ came not just that you would be saved, but that you would have life abundantly. And I don't mean in a televangelist prosperity gospel, if you follow Jesus, you'll have a bunch of money. He was homeless and he says that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Okay? Rather, you will have true joy. You will have lasting joy. You will have life in Him. Psalm 1611 says this about enjoying and loving and glorifying God. And if you're, if you're wondering, why is Zach reading all these passages about enjoying God when he's talking about glorifying Him? Because they're the same thing. Okay. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Revelation 411, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. And then the Westminster Larger Catechism says this when it talks about why humanity is here. Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully enjoy him forever. So let me ask you this question. Do you enjoy God? Do you serve him as though he is some harsh, mean taskmaster and you're just trying not to go to hell? You're just trying to hold it all together? Or do you enjoy God? Do you delight in him? Do you love him? When you go for a walk and you see the trees blossoming, do you realize that is a love letter to you? When you see a kid laugh, when you taste something that's delicious, when you have a good meal, when you spend time with your spouse, when you go see a fun movie, all of these are gifts from God. All the time, 24-7, God is just berating us with gifts, berating us with life and joy and provision and friendship and laughter and music and all these things, and we have a tendency to just think those are things. We don't think every single one of those was planned by God before the foundation of the world to show you that he loves you, to show you that he loves you. One of the things we're doing with my son Judah is when we give him something good, like a blow pop, all right, or whatever, we ask him, why did daddy give that to you? And he'll go, Blue Pop! And he doesn't understand. He doesn't understand the question. Why did Daddy give you that? Because Daddy loves you. Daddy loves you, and so he gives you good things. Okay? Daddy loves you, and he gives you good things. So if you're following God just out of a sense of begrudging submission and duty, one, it's great that you're still following him. Sometimes our motivations are not right, but our actions are. But two, I think what you're missing out is the fact that God doesn't want you to follow him just like a taskmaster you would follow. He wants you to realize that you are an adopted son or daughter of God, he wants you to realize that he delights in you he loves you he enjoys you okay do you see god with a smile on his face when you think of him or do you see him typically with a frown asking you to do better because if christ has done it all for us then he's always happy with us if we're in christ okay then he's always happy with us if we're in christ now everybody good okay that was i'm done preaching back to theology back to just dry rigid orthodoxy all right Why are humans valuable? What gives humans value? Okay? Why doesn't anybody get mad if I smash a spider, but if I shoot my neighbor, people freak out? Okay? Why is that? What is it that gives humans value? Okay? The Bible will say that humans and other creatures are not on the same level. Okay? Humans are far more important and more valuable than anything else God created. What is the highest thing that God created? Shout it out. Yeah, humans, right? How do we know that? Because the Bible says that, like, multiple times. We are said to be made in the imago Dei. That is a famous Latin phrase that means the image of God, okay? That means the image of God, okay? We, out of everything God has made, we alone bear God's image. Nothing else bears God's image. We're going to talk about what the image is in just a second. But you need to realize that humans are more important than anything else that's been created. If you're driving down the road and there's a baby and a cat, and a potted plant. You should not have to figure out, it shouldn't take you very long to figure out which one you should swerve and miss, okay? You miss the baby, you try to hit the cat, <laughs> or hit the potted plant, in that order, okay? In that order, okay? The baby, those are not on the same level, okay? Those are not on the same level. So we are, as Christians, speciesist. We are speciesist. We believe humans are better than other things. Let me give you some passages, ready? Ready? This is Genesis 1, 26 through 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So you need to see a few things in this text. Number one, we're explicitly said to be made in the image of God. Number two, that's linked to ruling over creation. We rule over creation. The fish and the animals—they don't rule over us. And then number three: notice that both men and women are made in the image of God. Both men and women here fall under this image here. Okay, here's another one. Psalm eight, one through nine, is actually a psalm glorifying God for His great creation of making humans. Okay, Psalm eight, one through nine. Let me read it. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your—I'm not going to sing it. Your name in all the earth, you have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have uh, set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beast of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along uh, the paths of the seas." O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. You see here them praising God, not praising humanity, praising God for the great creation of humanity, okay? Of the great creation of humanity. Now, what does it mean to bear God's image? So the Bible says we bear the image of God. Let's talk about what that does and doesn't mean. Here's the first thing you need to realize. This does not mean we look like God, Okay? God does not have a physical body. The Bible's very clear on this. God is everywhere. God is spirit, the Bible says, okay? God is infinite. God is Trinitarian. Don't think of the Father as a big man, okay? Do not do that. That is idolatry. We are made in God's image. He is not made in ours. When you start thinking of God as a big person, as far as like a man, then things start getting really confused because you start thinking, well, wait a second, does God have fingernails? That's ridiculous. Does God have chest hair? Does he have a spine? If you were to walk away and you were to see his back, would he have a spine? No! None of those questions make sense. He's not a big human. He's spirit. He's infinite. He's everywhere. Okay? He's indescribable. So, yes, Jesus is a man. The Son of God became human, so it's right to think of him as human, but you shouldn't think of the Father or the Spirit as uh, a human or something like that. God doesn't have a body. He's invisible, the Bible says, that no one has ever seen God or can see him all right, Uh, that he is invisible, that he uh, possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, and so do not think that being made in the image of God means that we look like him, okay? That's not the idea of image here. What is, then, the image of God? Well, the image of God, there's a lot of people that have tried to make it simply one thing, okay? So, for example, Saint Augustine thought that it was that we had our rational faculties. What makes us different from the animals is a great question to ask when we're talking about the image of God. So, what Augustine would say is it would be our rational faculties, okay? Dolphins are smart, but they don't do phenomenological philosophy. Dogs, you can teach to do tricks, but they don't do psychology or something like this. Okay? Other people, a guy named Emil Bruner, thought that it was that we have relationships. Okay? Dogs run in packs, but they don't confess their sins one to another. Okay? Uh, a bird that mates with another bird for life does not have the same depth of relationship as two humans that get married. Okay? Others thought that it was the fact that we rule over creation. Some early church fathers thought that the image of God was that we walked upright. Isn't that crazy? The animals, they're earthly. They're on all fours looking down, but humanity can grasp and look up at the heavens or something like that. The the, the image of God is not just one thing, okay? The image of God is not just something we do, it's something we are, and it's not just one thing. It's everything that makes humans different from animals, other animals. It's everything that gives us value. Let me mention some ways that we bear the image of God. Spiritually. Okay? All creation glorifies God, but you will very rarely see a squirrel with its hands raised in worship as it cries. Okay? We have spirituality. Mentally, we are more intelligent than other things that were made. Relationally, we have the depth of relationships with each other that other animals don't have. The the fourth one I've put here, and I think this is the biggest one, I think the primary thing it means to bear the image of God is this. Ready? That we rule over creation. We rule over creation. When this text in Genesis says that we bear the image of God, the thing it goes on to say the very next line is that we rule and have dominion over everything. The idea is that God is a king with a capital K. He rules over everything. What he does on earth is he takes humans and he establishes us to represent him, to honor him, to give glory to him. Okay? That's the idea of what it means to be a human. Now, let me be clear. We are not little gods or anything weirdo like that. We are just people made of the dirt. Okay? There's an infinite gap between us and God. But of everything that He's created, we represent Him more than anything else. More than anything else. Okay? More than anything else. We have rule and dominion over other animals. Every time I see someone up at five in the morning, walking their dog and having to pick up their dog's droppings, I think to myself, take dominion. Take dominion. That dog is ruining your life. Number five, morally. We have a moral culpability that other animals don't have. Okay? We have a moral culpability that other animals don't have. I often have people come up and they will say, Zach, what happens to my dog when he dies or my cat when he dies? Does he go to heaven? And I ask, was he an obedient dog? Just as a joke. Right? Dogs aren't judged for their sins like this. Uh, Emotionally, we have an emotional uh, capability that other animals don't have. Okay? You can make a dog sad, you can beat it, and these kind of things, but the complex emotions of wrestling with a relationship or a kid that's wayward or something like that is something other animals don't have. Uh, we have creativity that other animals don't have. Okay? So think of a, a beaver for a second. What do beavers build? They build dams, right? They've been building the same kind of dams for however long beavers have been around. Okay? Now think when a human builds something, we have all kinds of cool structures, Right? We've got like the Taj Mahal, and we've got skyscrapers, and we've got those weird little hexagon dome homes that people stack together like a caterpillar, all kinds of things. We have a creativeness about us that other animals don't have, and there are too many more to count. Okay? So what I want to say is this. The image of God is not just something you do. It's something you are. It doesn't mean you look like God. God is infinite. He uh, doesn't have a body or something like this. Uh, but it does mean that you are special. All right? You are more important than other things that have been made and you represent God to the rest of the world in several different ways. One of the biggest ones is rule and dominion, but it also includes the fact that we're uh, intelligent, we have a moral capability, spiritual, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. okay? When the Bible uses the term image to say that mankind is, specifically in Genesis, an image of God, do you know what term it uses? What are, what are images in the Old Testament? Are those typically good or bad? Yeah, they're idols. That's the word that's used in Hebrew. It's selim. It means idols. Okay? The reason you can't make an idol is because there's nothing like God. The closest you can come is a human. And even there, there's an infinite gap between us and God. Okay? The idea, though, of an idol is that, so let's say I'm the king of Babylon. Please don't call me that. Let's say I'm the king of Babylon and I want to conquer a bunch of nations. So I conquer a bunch of nations, and before I leave, you know what I do? I put up statues of Zach Lee, king of Babylon, all over the places I've conquered. You know why? Because that way, every time somebody sees a statue, they think, Zach rules here, Babylon rules here. Well, in a sense, that's what God's doing with humans. He makes these little people out of the dirt, and he says, anywhere you go on earth and you find a human, it's a reminder that Yahweh rules here. It's a reminder that Yahweh rules here. Okay? That's what's going on. We are to be mirrors. We are to be idols of God in that sense. Okay? Now, the image of God, here's something you need to know, was marred by the fall of man, but not completely uh, disintegrated. Okay? So when Adam and Eve fall, they still have their value as humans. They still have what they're supposed to do as humans. They haven't lost that. It's not as though you can go around now just killing people because they no longer bear the image of God. They do. But what they've lost in the fall is it's become marred, it's become broken. Instead of having spirituality the way they should do it, they create false religions. Instead of thinking right thoughts about God, logical, consistent, biblical thoughts about God, they believe lies and contradictions. Instead of having good relationships where a husband cares for his wife, he beats his wife. Instead of having good relationships where a boss and a co-worker work together, the boss tries to take advantage of the co-worker. The co-worker tries to take advantage of the boss, or whatever it is. Instead of having rule and dominion, things rule over us. The the ground bears thorns and thistles. Instead of being... uh, uh, obedient morally, we sin morally, so we still have these things, but they've become twisted and corrupted, okay? They've become twisted and corrupted. It's like God gave us a gun, and after the fall, we still have the gun, but it's set on fully automatic fire, and we can't control it, okay? And it's just hurting everybody. We still have the gun, but it's hurting people. It's not doing what it's made to do, okay? There's my gun plug for uh, today, so many more to come, many more to come. All right, now let's do some other theological things as it relates to humanity. Here's the question. Of how many parts are humans composed? I wanted to say, how many parts are humans composed of? But you can't say that. You can't end a sentence in a preposition and still be seen as a person who knows what you're doing. So I put, of how many parts are humans composed? There's a famous sentence where Winston Churchill said, these are things up with which I will not put, okay? Up with which I will not put, to not end a sentence in a uh, preposition. okay. Of how many parts are humans composed? There are three views, okay? So when you, when you, this is the question we're trying to ask. What are humans made of? So we've seen what gives humans value. We've seen the fact that we are to glorify God. We've seen all these kind of things. What are we made of? What are humans, okay? Now, don't say atoms. That doesn't answer the question. What about your soul? Is your soul made of atoms? Okay, now I've tricked you. So how many parts are humans composed of? There are three views. Trichotomy. How many parts do you think a trichotomist thinks we're composed of? You guys nailed it. Tricycle, see? Tricycle, bicycle, when you were a little kid has now come, become very important in theology. Tricotomy. Dichotomy. How many of you think that is? Two. Nailed it. And then monism. Sounds a little trickier, but uh, yeah, one. Mono is the idea there. Monism means one. So a trichotomist holds that you are basically consist of three parts you have a body, you have a soul, which they would define as your mind, will, and emotions, it's your personality. But you also then have a third thing, a spirit, which is an immaterial part of you that especially comes alive at conversion. Okay? So a trichotomist believes that you are what three parts? Yell them out. Body? Good. Don't be timid. I said this isn't the service. Theological equipping, we get crazy. We pass around pizza, all right? So body, what else? Soul and spirit. Okay, that's a trichotomist. The first person to uh, really push this in the early church is a guy named Irenaeus. Okay, Irenaeus. He's also the first person on record to baptize infants, interestingly enough. Uh, But uh, but what a trichotomist holds is that you have your body. That's this. That's this stuff. This is the body. You have your soul, which is your mind, will, and emotions. It's you. Zach is his soul. But you have this third part of you, spirit, which uh, is the part of you that most directly relates to God. And that comes alive primarily at conversion for the trichotomist. Well, the dichotomist is someone who holds that mankind is made of what? How many parts? Two. The dichotomist holds that you're made of body. They all agree that you have a body. That's pretty easy easy to see, okay? Anybody in here not a body? Yes, says a voice from the corner, right? No, that's not happening. We have bodies. They believe that you have a body, and they believe your second part is the soul slash spirit. They believe that the soul and the spirit are the same thing, okay? The soul and the spirit are the same thing. So a dichotomist would say that you're composed of two parts. A material part, your body, and an immaterial part, your soul slash spirit. So they would say that the spirit's not something different than your soul. Let me pause real quick. The third person of the Trinity, God's Holy Spirit, is certainly different from you. That's not what we're talking about when I say your spirit. I mean human spirit for this conversation, just to, just to clarify, lest you think I'm denying the spirit or something. Uh, a dichotomist holds, though, that you are body, a material part, and a soul slash spirit, an immaterial part. Okay. First person in church history to really promote this is the guy Tertullian. Tertullian, if you've heard of him, he's also the one that used, was the first one to coin the phrase Trinitas, Trinity. Tertullian is the first one to promote this idea of dichotomy. Now, a monist is someone that thinks that you're just one thing, okay? You're just one thing, and when you die, your soul ceases to be, okay? But some monists hold that when you're resurrected, your soul then can reunite with your body, but it's still just one thing, Okay? So a monist doesn't really see a difference between your body and your soul. There are not very many Christians throughout church history that are monists. You see the problem with that. When you die, your soul is still somehow interacting with God. All right? Your soul is somehow interacting with God when you die. So the monist position is not a great position. Here is the position I would encourage you to take. Ready? I would encourage you to be a dichotomist, but to hold a strong view of the unity of those things. So we we do consist of two different things. We're body and we're soul slash spirit. We're body and we're soul. But I would encourage you to see humanity as one unified whole. Okay? So I'm a dichotomist, but I want to give the qualifier that I think you need to see humanity as one unified whole. Your job is not to just have your soul go to heaven when you die. The goal is to have a new body and a new heavens and new earth as you're resurrected. And that has the idea of material and immaterial coming together. Okay? When you sin with your body, it affects your soul. How you feel in your soul, if you're angry towards God, will cause you to sin with your body. The two are linked. The physical and the spiritual are linked. So I'm a dichotomist, but I would encourage you to have a strong emphasis on realizing that soul and body go together. Now, let me tell you why I don't think the trichotomist argument is correct, right? Everybody remember what the trichotomist is? Body, soul, and spirit are different things? The dichotomist says you just have body and soul slash spirit. The soul and spirit are the same thing. The reason I think that the trichotomist view is wrong is because what they're going to do is they're going to say the reason that there are three things is because there are several passages in the Bible that mention three things, okay? The problem with that is that the word spirit, in, in Greek it's pneuma, and the word soul, psuche, It's where we get the word psychology, uh, those are used interchangeably in the New Testament, okay? I'll give you a few examples. Let me show you, and I've put them here on your handout. Some examples of where soul and spirit are used interchangeably. John 12, 27 says, Now my soul was troubled. So what is said to be troubled there? The soul. Now look at the next verse. John 13, 21 says this: Jesus was troubled in his spirit. So notice that both the spirit and the soul are troubled, because they're just two different descriptions of the same thing. Genesis 35, 18. And as her, Rachel's soul was departing for her, for she was dying. So as Rachel's dying in the Old Testament, what departs from her? Her soul, it says. But look at Acts seven fifty nine. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So one, the soul's departing, and the other, the spirit's departing. Why? Because they're the same thing. Because they're the same thing. Everything the soul is said to do, the spirit is said to do, and vice versa. Okay? So what a trichotomist holds is that our soul is our mind, will, and our emotions, and the spirit is like the spiritual part of us. The problem with that is Paul's spirit was provoked within him, according to Acts 17, 16. Jesus was troubled in spirit, John 13, 21. Our spirit is said to know our thoughts, 1 Corinthians two eleven. So you can't just say the soul is the mind, will, and the emotions, because here this text says the spirit knows is like the mind, will, and emotions. Also, our soul is said to worship, not just our spirit. A trichotomist thinks that the spirit is the spiritual part of you that most worships God. The problem is Psalm 103, 1 through 2 says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. So notice that the soul worships in this text. So here's all I'm trying to say. This is a very technical, irrele- irrelevant discussion. Everything I've just said on dichotomy, trichotomy, monism, you can just get rid of it if you want to. I don't think it's that important, but you need to know it for comprehension's sake. Why? Because at the Parkway Church, we give you everything you need to know and even some things you don't, okay? And even some things you don't. What you need to know is soul and spirit are used interchangeably a lot in the Bible, okay? So, I don't think those are different parts of humanity. Those are the same thing. Now, the third person of the Trinity, God's Holy Spirit, comes and dwells within us when we become believers, but that's God, okay? That's not part of humanity or something like that. That's God. Uh, Why do trichotomists hold that that the soul and spirit are are different things, I'll give you an example. 1 Thessalonians 5:23 says this: "Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ." Okay? The reason that a trichotomist believes that soul and spirit are different is because at several times in the Bible soul and spirit are listed next to each other. Okay? That doesn't mean they are different things, though. It's just trying to say, with your whole being, know this. I'll give you an example. When the Bible says you should love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength, do you now say we need to be quadrotomists because the four things were just mentioned? No, because those things are meant to say the same thing. Worship God with your everything. To worship God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength means everything you are, not, well, my heart is my feelings, and my strength is with my in the gym. I'll worship God when I'm in the gym. That's not the point. The point of that is to say worship God with everything. So in the same way when the Bible says to glorify God with your body, your soul, your spirit, it's just meaning to say all of you. It's not trying to answer the dichotomous, trichotomous question. Everybody with me? Okay. Next point. Next point that you need to know that's super important is this. God's material creation is good, including our bodies. We have a tendency, and this comes out of Greek philosophy, and it's traced down through the Middle Ages. We have a tendency to think that our souls are really good and spiritual, but our bodies, not so much. If I were to ask you, which part of you is more valuable, the soul or the body? Almost everybody would say soul, and I want to say, no, they're both important. They're both valuable. You can't create that dichotomy. There is a dichotomy, but you have to hold it together. Like I said, there has to be a unity here. So here's what I'm trying to say. Your soul is important. Your body's important. Your soul is a gift from God. Your body is a gift from God. Your soul is good. Your body is good. As it was created, both our souls and our bodies have become corrupted because of sin. But as originally created, your body and soul are good. So what I'm trying to do is fight this idea that the body is like the prison for the soul is kind of a phrase you get in Greek philosophy. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. We have a tendency to think that our souls are good because they're spiritual and non-material, but our bodies, you know, it's through our bodies that we lust, and it's through our bodies that we commit gluttony, and it's through our bodies that we do these bad things, forgetting the fact that those are prompted by your soul anyway. And so what I want to do is I just want to say this. If you have a negative view of the human body or you have a negative view of physicality, that has to go. What you see in Genesis after this is really important. What you see in Genesis, after God creates everything, he declares it to be very good. Everything that he's made, including your bodies. So let me read you some passages that talk about God's, the goodness of uh, God's material creation. Genesis one thirty one, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Notice that God says everything he made is good. 1 Timothy 6, 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. If you have something from God that is not sinful, God wants you to have that to enjoy. God wants you to have that to enjoy, according to this text. Do you feel guilty when you're having non-sinful fun? That's a great question. Do you feel guilty when you're having fun that's not sinful, right? If the fun thing you like to do is just start committing genocide, that's not it. But on a fun thing that's not sinful, do you feel guilty when you're having fun? Because you should not, because God's given you that non-sinful good thing there to enjoy. 1 Timothy four says this, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. There's this idea, in even throughout church history, where there's this harsh treatment of the body, and asceticism, and people won't eat delicious foods, or they'll go a long time without eating food at all, and they'll do these kind of things, and it is seen as... Uh, unrighteous. and seen as unrighteous. You're rather to uh, not reject these things. You're to receive them with thanksgiving. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So the Bible's going to say, not only is, does your body... Okay, I've said this before. Your body belongs to God. This idea of it's my body and I'll do what I want with my body, that's not true. God owns your body. If you're a Christian, the Spirit dwells in your body. If you're married, your body belongs to your spouse. You're like third in line for your body, okay? So your body does not just belong to you. There's a sense in which it also belongs to the state. They can can draft you to the military. You're not allowed to walk around naked, these kind of things. So maybe they're fourth in line for your body. Uh, But the whole idea here is if you're a Christian, then what that means is that the Spirit of God dwells inside of you. So walk in righteousness. Walk in righteousness. Psalm 139, 13 through 14 says this, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Okay? God took each detail of our bodies. He made them uniquely for us. In Song of Solomon, Song of Solomon 4, 1 through 7, says this. This is where a husband is praising the the beauty of his bride. Don't worry, I'm not getting into anything inappropriate, as I mentioned Song of Solomon. Uh, Hebrew boys were not allowed to read the Song of Solomon until they reached the age of 13, by the way. So if you want a spicy, spicy book to read, Song of Solomon. It's in the Bible. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Some of these don't translate as well for today. Okay, So you'd have to say something like your hair is like a Ferrari, all right, something like that, to make this make sense. I like this next one. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bears twins, and not one among them has lost its young, meaning she's got all her teeth. (laughs) Dr. Steve is not here. I needed him to be here because I had a funny joke where I was going to say there's nothing more attractive than a woman with all her teeth. Am I right, Dr. Steve? Because he's a dentist, but he's not here, and so it ruined my joke, ruined my joke. Your lips are like scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, meaning it's regal, it's strong. Built in rows of stone, on it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadows flee. I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. And what he does, and there are more, uh, there are racier passages that I chose not to read, he's describing the beauty of his bride, and he's doing so in all this language that says, you're beautiful, you're lovely, your body has been made good, all right? Your body has been made good. So all I'm trying to say in that is we are soul and body, and they're both important. One of the arguments the Corinthians are actually making in the book of 1 Corinthians uh, is there are guys that are going to temple prostitutes, and their excuse is, that's just my body. That doesn't affect my soul. And Paul has to say, no, I I think you don't understand. One, it does affect your soul because you're one unit. Two, the spirit dwells inside of you, dwells inside of you. Okay, now, before we do Q&A, we're going to briefly go over another thing you don't have to remember, but for the sake of completeness, we're going to talk about it, okay? There is another big debate in church history, and this is the debate. I've given you some weird terms here. Creationism versus Traducianism, okay? Creationism versus Traducianism. What are those talking about? Here's the question. Where does a baby get its soul? That's the question. When a husband and wife come together and a baby is formed... Where does that baby get its soul? We know that it gets its body from its parents, right? Little Timmy looks like Timmy Sr. or whatever, right? I, I, hey, Tim. Haddon kind of looks like you, I guess. So uh, so kids look like their parents physically. So here's the question. Where do they get their soul, though? Where do they get their soul, though? Two views. One is direct creationism, which is the idea that God creates the baby soul at the moment of conception. Okay? That God creates the baby soul at the moment of conception. The other view is that somehow, when a baby's created, it partakes of both the spiritual and the physical parts of its parents. Okay, that's called traducianism. that the baby partakes of both the spiritual and the physical parts. So it's almost like, in direct creationism, the baby gets its body from its parents, and then God implants God creates a soul in it. Just, the soul didn't exist before that, we don't believe in any of that weird stuff, God just creates a soul in it. Traducianism is, as the husband and wife come together, the baby receives body from mom and dad, and somehow, it's soul from mom and dad somehow its soul from mom and dad okay let me give you the arguments of both and then i will give you my view okay let's start with the arguments for traducianism again what is traducianism somebody describe it for me in your own words there you go baby gets body and soul from mom and dad okay good very good so here are the arguments for traducianism if god is really creating our souls then he didn't actually rest from creation on the 7th day He's actually creating thousands and thousands of new things every day. So it's not that God created everything and then stopped. He is having to create brand new things all the time. Okay? So the Traducian would say that makes no sense, that God would be continually creating new things all the time today, so obviously the baby has to get its soul from its parents. Another argument for Traducianism, the idea that the soul comes from mom and dad. If our souls are also corrupted, then they must be in the line of Adam Or else, God is creating a corrupt soul to give you. So here's the idea. If God just creates a new soul, just creates... So when a a baby uh, is conceived, and God just creates that soul, that soul wouldn't then be linked to Adam. Why would God create a corrupt soul and give it to the baby so the baby's born in sin? Surely the baby has to get its soul from its parents so that whatever Adam was, which was body and soul, the baby has to get through that lineage so that the baby has a corrupt soul. Another argument in favor of traducianism: kids seem to sometimes have the personality traits of their parents. Do they not? Now, sometimes, here's the argument against that. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes your kids are super different from you, but sometimes they're similar. And then lastly, this is interesting, the Bible will sometimes say that someone is, quote, in the loins of another person, Okay. Right, that it'll talk about us being in the loins. It'll talk about Jews being in the loins of Abraham, or uh, you know, Abraham being in the loins of Melchizedek, or something like this. And so it'll talk about someone being in the loins of another person, which assumes that somehow that person's soul is already there. Something. There you go. Just traducingism. Okay. So those are some arguments for traducingism. Let me get, just go over creationism real quick, and then uh, Jeff's going to come up, and we're going to do some Q and A. Arguments for creationism. Ecclesiastes twelve seven. This is the idea that God just creates a soul in us. Ecclesiastes twelve seven says this, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirits return. I'm sorry, the spirit returns to God who gave it. Let me read that again, like I actually know how to read. Ecclesiastes twelve seven, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Okay, another argument for creationism: Adam's spirit was received directly from God. Right, the idea is that God created Adam's spirit in him; He breathed life into him. In Hebrews twelve nine, God is called specifically, quote, uh, the Father of spirits. The child's soul seems to be completely different and not just a combination of the parent's souls, okay? So when you have a baby, it doesn't seem like he's just half mom and half dad or she's half mom and half dad. She seems to have her own personality, her own soul. Uh, Creationism would explain how Christ was kept free from having a sinful nature. How can Christ, who's human, truly human, be kept free from having a sinful nature? And the idea here is is that his human soul could have been created directly by God uh, without uh, a taint of sin. And then lastly, the soul is holistic, okay? If you cut off your finger, you still have your body, okay? Even though you lost 1% of your body. Can you lose like 1% of your soul? Can you give up like 30% of your soul to give it to a kid? No, it doesn't work that way. Soul is not like a body. Soul is immaterial. Soul you can't cut into parts. It's a unity. Uh, and so uh, the creationist will say that. Now, you don't have to remember any of that, okay? I just want you to know because we're doing anthropology. I want you to be sitting around at work and be like, are you introducing to your coworker? And just watch their eyes get crossed. Okay, That's what I want you to do. All I'm trying to say is this. There is a debate in church history of whether or not our souls are created at the moment of conception or somehow we receive something, some part of our soul nature from our parents. Okay, Traducingism is that we receive it from our parents. Creationism is that it's created directly. There are good arguments for both. What is my view? My view is the view of St. Augustine who said, we don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us fully. Okay, He held one view and then he changed his mind to another view but at the end of his life he basically said, I don't really know. That's my view.